0: Tonight's scripture reading comes from John chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The word of the Lord. I like broken things, all kinds of broken things. I really like broken buildings. I'm not impressed by grandeur, opulence, or structural marvel. I'm drawn to rubble, ruin, and collapse. I've been this way as long as I have a memory of ever considering a structure. As a young kindergartner or first grader, I remember walking with my brother, Mike, down Ventura Boulevard in Ventura, California, in a neighborhood that I'd heard my grandmother describe as run-down. This is where I spent the first eight years of my life. And I remember looking around at all the buildings and the businesses and the structures and thinking, they all looked like they used to be something else. Like a different kind of business, or else like cleaner, or maybe even... Open? Remember one time we went into this closed and abandoned gas station. I was young. I was a little kid. Things were different back then. This gas station was like this old-time kind of gas station. Like, when I think of it now, I would say it's like classical, like, streamlined, modern gas station architecture. You know, with that awning thing built out over the pumps and those beautiful, like, Control tower glass window angling out kind of office structures and then two service bays, you know, and it was uh, at this point all abandoned, all ripped up, all just a, a wreck, a ruin. The roll-up doors on the service bays were just gone and there were cracks in the glass and I remember we went in there and we saw these things. I just remember seeing them before. There were, like, these big wells in the floor. There was no lift. It was like there were these concrete stairs that went down into this little, like, these wells. And there was some water and grease in the mud. But the cars used to, like, pull in and they would go under there and work on them. And there was, like, a a knocked-over refrigerator. And the door to the office was metal and bent and rusty. And something about that place just seemed, I don't know what, like... Like I was like somehow stepping into another place or a past or I somehow had had access to other lives or something. Then these big kids, as we called them, um, saw us in there and came in and said, "What are you doing in here? And you can't be in here. And this is our place." And um, and one of them picked up this pipe and we ran. it was like so scary and so like compelling to me. It's weird. Like it was intensely compelling to me. After that, when we'd drive past it, you know, when I was sitting in the back seat and I would, I would look out the window and I'd see that abandoned, broken down gas station and I had some, like, yearning for it. I, like, I, I could just imagine as we drove past what it was like when it first opened with shiny cars pulling up and, you know, uniformed attendants coming out and guys saying, fill her up. And uh, I don't know why it got to me. I mean, I will tell you straight out that I have never found a brand new, currently functioning gas station intensely compelling I have not driven past a super-America and imagined the rich lives that are going on there. This is the end. After 28 chapters, the gospel according to Matthew, in today's reading, comes to a proper finish. Which is saying more than you think, because of all the four gospels, this is the only one that manages to come to a proper finish. Mark's gospel kind of trails off in the middle of a sentence and then suffers from a couple of bad cut and paste jobs to put a better face on it. And Luke's ending, the end of his gospel, is more of a, you have reached the end of part one, please turn the cassette over and push play for part two, the Acts of the Apostles. And old uh, Ray Ray Brown makes a pretty compelling argument that John's gospel ends with chapter 20, not 21, but then some editor thought that it would be a good idea to put in a whole other chapter worth of pro-Peter is our leader propaganda. But here there's no debate. There's no debate about the last four verses of our longest gospel. With unusual brevity here at the end, the author of Matthew presents these obedient disciples meeting Jesus on a mountain in Galilee as they were instructed to do, which again is saying something because uh, it's the only gospel where they do that. In um, Mark, the women never go and tell the, the disciples that Jesus would like to meet them in Galilee. They just run away scared and don't talk to anyone. And in Luke and John, they go and they hide in a house in Jerusalem. But they here in Matthew, they go and they have to go to the mountain that he instructed them to do. To meet Jesus in Galilee, and they go there and they worship him for the first time. I know you and I—we just, you know, they can work at it. We worship Jesus all the time. They'd never done it before. This was the first time. Kind of signal the change in the relationship. And then, yes, curiously, next—and I say blessedly—the presence of doubt is acknowledged. So they went to the mountain that he instructed them. They worshipped him, and some doubted. I like that that's there, that it's acknowledged. And then Jesus empowers the eleven with the mission to make disciples, either by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Jesus' commandments, or to make disciples then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them his commandments. It's a matter of debate, which comes first. And frankly, not something I'll focus on tonight. And then finally, he delivers a closer that is is a great one. This is a good way. To, this is a good ending thing. He delivers this closer that is at the same time comforting, powerful, and has just a bit of a dash of inspirational speech to it. It's a great last line. And remember. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's worth repeating. It's good. Yeah, so, meet at the mountain for worship, doubt, discipling, and assurance. Not a bad formula to build a religious tradition around or a Sunday service. You know, come to worship, I think uh, refocusing of worship as this Eucharist, this great Thanksgiving, a weekly gathering of the community to express our gratitude, I think that kind of refocusing of worship, I think it could change the culture. Maybe even answer the whole, is this church thing relevant question. Doubt. I love doubt. I think. Doubt's a given. It's a given, and it's a necessary part of deep faith. And then the assurance part, yes. The assurance of the presence of God, of the risen Christ. I mean, it's one of my favorite bits to proclaim to you here every week, this assurance that God is present with us. I like it. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great thing. Meet at the mountain for worship, doubt, and assurance. Okay, you might have noticed I left out the discipling part. Yeah, the part about making disciples. I skipped that. I know that for a lot of people that that is the most important part. It's the Great Commission. What does he tell them? Go and make disciples. I mean, for a lot of people, yeah, that's a, that is the most important part. For many expressions of the church, I mean, even like from the soul savers to the justice, social justice-centered folks, it's all make disciples. Let's teach them this stuff to do this stuff. Make disciples. I'd say it makes me a bit uncomfortable. It's not the baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or teaching everything that Jesus commanded, teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. Although maybe in our context, I wouldn't hit the obey too hard. Could be a stumbling block for some of you. The part that really gets me is the making part. The making part of making disciples. That's what trips me up. I mean, from the beginning, since we started House of Mercy, like, we always said we want to be really careful that we don't have any interest in making anybody anything. We do not want to do anything to anybody. We don't want to do anything at anybody. We don't want to make anybody into anything we don't, Yeah, we're not interested. We don't want to, we don't do outreach. Some people say that's probably the secret of our success and growing numbers. Um, we don't try to convince people or persuade people. We try to proclaim and point. Proclaim, there's good ways we know. We point to the mercy of God through Jesus. We don't want to do anything to anybody. We just figure, let's proclaim this, let's point, and then let the folks and the Spirit of God work it out. Attraction rather than promotion is how another tradition puts it. I know House of Mercy isn't really unique in this, and, you know, but perhaps maybe we're so adamant about it because some of us original folks and pastors kind of came from a, uh, what would you say, American evangelical upbringing? Where doing something to somebody was kind of the whole point of the whole religious tradition? Yeah. I don't want anybody to try and make me into something. I mean, really. I do not want anyone to try and make me into something, especially something that they are vigorously convinced that Jesus told them to make me into. I don't want any part of that. Seems to me, in our like current cultural context, where the truth claims are absolute and appeals to heavenly authority are rightly viewed with suspicion. I'm sorry, it's been that way since 1987. Um, in this context, I think this proper conclusion of this gospel, it's just become too conflated with Western Christian exceptionalism to just go be accepted as the end of this gospel and the Great Commission, and whoa. There's basic questions here that need to be asked. Like, how confident are we in our own or others' understanding of this authority that Jesus speaks of, that he's been given on heaven and earth, and that our ability to understand what that is and wield it in his stead? It's a good basic question. And then just basically, is it possible to make... A believer, you hold them down and tickle them? What I mean, how do you do this? You threaten them? Oh, yeah, that, that usually is what they do. But I'm not sure it works. I don't think you can. And isn't the notion of going into all nations and making them like you the definition of Empire? I'm not interested in building an empire. I'm not interested in that story about our faith tradition, that empire story. I am not proud that the disciples of Jesus were so successful and to go in into all the nations and making disciples that the Roman Empire thought that the religion was actually worth acquiring. That it was worth buying. That they were so successful at doing this to all these people in all these nations that the Roman Empire thought this is worth co opting. I don't like the stories of the Crusaders and the Inquisition and the Spanish explorers bringing Christianity to a new world. I don't want to be part of a dominant religious tradition. I'm not interested in empires unless they've fallen. I only like the ruins of empires. I like the broken things. The broken buildings. I wonder if my attraction to abandoned and broken down buildings is, I don't know, not some comment of my psychology, but... Just simply the result of my circumstances, living in that neighborhood in Ventura, the run-down neighborhood, and then growing up here in St. Paul, it's just maybe what was around me. I mean, St. Paul is a city that used to be. I suppose there's a nicer way you could put that. You could say that um, St. Paul is a city with a sense of history. Either way, there's a lot of looking back. There's a lot of looking back in this city, back to when James J. Hill built the railroad and it was like the most important financial city, you know, east of the west of the Chicago. Or looking back to the days when F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, sat in a third floor apartment on Summit Avenue writing his first novel after he dropped out of Princeton. That's Summit Avenue. I think it has a lot to do with it. We're looking back to the days when gangsters filled the street and there was, you know, glamour and danger. And I like it. I like those stories. I grew up here. I tell them endlessly. You've probably heard me, many of you. My kids, they can't stand it. We drive down the street. I don't only tell them what used to be in that building, I tell them what was there before that thing that isn't there anymore was there. But it's the structures. I like the stories, but I like the structures better. I like the broken down buildings, the abandoned buildings. They're like bodies, decaying bodies of something that happened. Like the broken down buildings, they mark what used to be. I've had this experience so many times of seeing an abandoned building and looking at it and imagining not only what happened there, but what could happen there in the future what it could be not how great it just once was but how cool it could be like thinking if somebody fixed this up restored it it would like be amazing it could be like a cafe you know or the most incredible place to live or a church even it could be like the most awesome church that People would just come because it just, like, looks so cool that they took this old building and made it into some kind of church. It would be unbelievable. I see these buildings all the time. And, like, that gas station, there's something in my heart, like, it just tugs at me. What it could be, what it was. And then, inevitably, someone buys it and starts to restore it. And they make it into like a cafe or some lame place to live. And I look at it and I'm just like, oh, come on. Come on. Like, I don't know, it seems like the ruins of something offers like the possibility of redemption. You know, you can see this amazing place and you can see it is all broken down and you can think, Great men have screwed up here. Something went terribly wrong. They're broken. And it seems like the more you rebuild that building, the more you define it, the more you start to replace that tin ceiling moving those tables. The more you make it into something, every decision you make limits possibilities. When it's a ruin whatever, it's all possibilities are there. This place can be fully redeemed, but when you make the decisions, when you do something to it, you decide this door and that is going to be this thing, it's just a matter of limiting possibilities until you get to this narrow place where it's a dry cleaner. All those possibilities are gone, and I don't, I don't trust the interpreter, that real estate developer, to understand what true redemption looks like for that structure. Broken seems more true to me Broken seems more true to me than greatness. When has greatness ever helped anybody, honestly? I mean, are people's lives profoundly, like, turned around when they finally realize how great they are? Do people, when they finally admit to themselves their own greatness, when they come to accept and love their own greatness? Is that when their lives get turned around? When has that ever helped anybody? This great commission, this proper ending we have here. Make disciples, make dry cleaners, make go out in there and make them like we understand greatness to be. I like the last little bit, the very end. Remember, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I like that, it seems apocalyptic, doesn't it? The end of the age. There's no gleaming new office buildings in the end of the age. There's just ruins of great men and women trying to express their greatness. It's the decaying buildings. It's no narrow definition of what redemption looks like. Christ is with us at the end of the age, in the brokenness. And maybe you might say, well, you can't stay in the brokenness, but I don't, I don't think I know what true redemption even looks like. I know what brokenness looks like, but I don't know what fully redeemed looks like. And when, those, when people tell me that they do, it's like a bad remodel. I like a body, like a broken body. I can trust that.